Stingy Jack was a rude man. He was dishonest, short-tempered, and regularly cursed at his neighbors, children, and anyone who dared bid him hello. To make matters worse, he was the first person to arrive at the pub and the last person to leave. That is to say, Stingy Jack drank from sunup to sundown for as long as anyone could remember. However, despite his foul mood and drunken disameanor, Stingy Jack was a clever man. When he was born, perhaps the stars aligned in his favor. Maybe it was nothing more than a case of dumb luck, but you know what they say, everyone's luck runs out eventually, even Jack's. It all started one evening when Jack was stumbling home from the pub. Now, he had been extra terrible that day, even more so than usual. Jack's health had been declining for years, and on that faithful day, death had finally caught up with him. When the devil materialized in front of Jack, the man didn't cower or beg for more time. Instead, he asked for one last drink. The devil was a drinking man himself, so the pair retracted Jack's steps. Satan ordered a round of drinks for all the patrons in the pub. Jack finished his beer, and as a final request, asked the devil to pay for the tab by transforming himself into a coin. Now, in case it's not yet obvious, the devil admired Jack. He applauded him when he yelled at strangers, and when he purposely bumped the young lad clearing tables. When his tray crashed to the ground and sent shards of glass skittering over the floor, Jack and the devil laughed and laughed. So it's no surprise that the devil accepted Jack's challenge with a smile. But as soon as he transformed into a coin, Jack grabbed the piece of gold and slipped it into his pocket. Aha, Jack said, if you're so smart, how do you not know I carry a pentagram in my pocket? Remove the pentagram at once, insisted the devil. Never, Jack said. Unless, of course, anything, the devil said. Name your price. I'll set you free, but only if you go away and not return for a decade. It is done, the devil promised. So Jack removed the pentagram, and true to his word, the devil went home. He stayed in hell an entire decade, but on the anniversary of the tenth year, he left his throne and returned to Earth. When he materialized in front of Jack for the second time, the man didn't try to hide or run away. Instead, he asked for one last meal. The devil, who was still enamored with Jack and his wicked ways despite their history, obliged. Jack requested an apple. As luck would have it, there was a massive tree within arm's length. It was dripping with scarlet apples. And within moments, the devil shimmied up the trunk, reached past the tallest branch, and plucked the roundest, ripest apple. Meanwhile, Jack used his knife to etch three pentagrams around the tree's trunk. 
trapping the devil once more. Aha! said Jack. If you're so wise, how do you not know that apples are better left untouched? Let me down! the devil raged. <laughs> Never. Unless, of course. Name your price, said the devil. I'll give you whatever you want. I'll let you down, but only if you swear to keep me out of hell for all eternity. The devil sighed, but he had no choice. It is done, he said. So Jack scratched out the three pentagrams, and the devil slid down the trunk. True to his word, he flew back down to hell, even though he still watched Jack's antics from his fiery throne. He never returned to Earth looking for him. As the story goes, it would be Jack looking for the devil. Like I mentioned, Jack's drinking had indeed caught up with him. After his body succumbed to the hell he'd put it through for so many years, his soul detached from his physical form. Wouldn't you know it? Jack wasn't concerned that he was dead, but with no pub to drink in, no bed to rest in, where was he supposed to go? Jack looked around for clues, but everything was dark and hazy. It was somehow both hot and cold at the same time. The wind screamed, and then it stilled. Jack was tired, confused, and beyond thirsty, but had no choice. All he could do was walk, wait, and then walk some more. Occasionally, he would see a glimmer of light, but the mysterious orb would dance away before he got close. Eventually, Jack arrived at a massive gate, covered in pearls and rainbow-colored feathers. The magnificent doors looked out of place compared to the deary landscape, but Jack didn't care. He kicked at the doors and slammed his fist into the pearls, crushing a few in the process. Jack swore and cried for what felt like days, but it was no use. The doors remained locked. No saintly presence materialized to welcome him to the afterlife. Now, Jack wasn't a religious man, but he knew that if Heaven's door were off limits, he'd be forced to take another route through the gates of Hell. The only problem was that Jack hadn't thought about his old friend the Devil since their last incident in the apple tree. But the Devil thought about Jack all the time, and when Jack arrived at another pair of massive doors, these ones made from bone and thorn, the devil was already waiting. Let me in, said Jack. I'm lost, tired, and I need a drink. The devil smiled and wagged a finger. Ah, no can do, he said. Have you forgotten what I promised? To leave me alone, said Jack, so move aside and let me be on my way. But despite Jack's lip, the devil smelled fear. Besides, said Jack, if you don't let me through these doors, where else am I supposed to go? The devil shrugged, for he truly didn't care. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me thrice, well... There won't be a thrice, he said. 
For once in his miserable life, Jack was speechless. He reached for the devil, who tossed a tiny glowing ember in his direction, followed by some parting words. Happy hunting. Then, with a flick of his wrist, the gates of bone and thorn swung open. The devil passed through, leaving Jack alone. His only companion, a stinging piece of coal that threatened to extinguish at any moment. Jack felt around in the dark, looking for something, anything, and discovered a rotten turnip. He cut out the bad parts, hollowed out the middle, and rested the ember inside. To this day, Jack wanders the shadow world. Only during Samhain does the haze lift and the ember glow, and Stingy Jack finds his way back to the realm of the living. They say his antics are worse now than before. He haunts his favorite pubs, apple orchards, and anyone who forgets to light their jack-o'-lanterns on All Hallows' Eve. When Olive Hamilton was on her way to school, she would often leave a pile of fruit and nuts where the road met the Santa Lucia Mountains. On her trip back, the fruit would be gone, a small banquet of flowers in its place. According to those who knew her, she was a practical woman. She was a school teacher not one to encourage tales of ghosts and other supernatural phenomena. However, she was a firm believer in the Dark Watchers, a group of mysterious beings that roamed the mountains around Big Sur, like others who lived in the area. Olive was privy to plenty of local folklore alluding to the Dark Watchers before Europe started shipping colonizers to coastal California in the 16th century, the Chumash were guardians of the mountains, all the way from Morro Bay to Malibu, where the Dark Watchers are not specifically associated with the Chumash. Legend says that elders and children often spoke tall, shadowy figures that materialized during the late afternoon, only to disappear once they'd been spotted. So when Spanish settlers arrived in the 1500s, they also encountered the Dark Watchers. They called them Los Vigilantes, Oscuros. I apologize if I mispronounced that. And although the mysterious beings never showed any aggression towards the colonizers, the sensation of being watched served as an unsettling reminder that they were not alone. According to witnesses, the Dark Watchers usually camouflaged themselves amongst the trees or hovered near the horizon, while some stories portray them as small creatures similar to gnomes or elves. Most accounts describe the Dark Watchers as standing about ten feet tall with large black eyes. They also carry a walking stick and wear a cape and a tall hat 
sometimes referred to as witch's hat, that makes them appear even larger. In the 1930s, a local poet named Robertson Jeffers wrote about the Dark Watchers for his anthology. Such counsels you gave to me in other poems. Whether this poetry was inspired by local lore or his own experiences is still up for debate. But in one other of these poems, Jeffers mentions making eye contact with one of the Watchers at twilight. When he got close. The watcher's face began to melt and distort. Eventually, it dissolved into shadows, as if it were made of mist. Olive's fascination with the shadow people likely influenced her son, and eventually her grandson, into writing prose, hinting at what lurked within the neighboring mountains. Her son, John Stanbeck, wrote about them. In his fictional short story *Flight*, although the story focuses on Pepe, a young man who has unintentionally murdered someone and then escapes to the mountains looking for refuge, Pepe's mother offers some chilling advice: "When thou comest to the high mountains, if thou seest any of the dark watching men, go not near them, nor try to speak to them." Not surprisingly, Pepe spots a few dark watchers peeking out from behind the ridge, but remembers his mother's words and averts his gaze. He knows that the dark watchers won't mess with someone who stays on the trail and keeps to themselves, which is a recurring sentiment when it comes to the dark watchers. May we acknowledge one another, show respect, but also keep our distance. In 2014, Benjamin Broad and Thomas Steinbeck, John's son, published a book titled *In Search of the Dark Watchers*. The book claims to be inspired by Big Sur's rugged landscape, local folklore, and Steinbeck's childhood memories. For most folks, reading about the winding mountains and trails and shadows that morph on a whim. Is the perfect introduction to the Dark Watchers, but there will always be those who prefer a hands-on approach. So if you dream about retracting the same steps as Olive Robinson, John Thomas, and Benjamin, and the countless hikers and explorers who have passed through the mystical mountains of Big Sur, just remember the Dark Watchers may be eerie and elusive. It might be taller than trees and darker than night, but according to a former schoolteacher, they appreciate small gestures. The dark watchers love gifts. Olive says, "A handful of nuts or a piece of fruit will do just fine, but only if we dare." Gather round for a ghost story about the Louisiana vampire Jacques Saint Germain. Many will argue that the most notorious vampire was Dracula, or perhaps his real-world counterpart, Vlad the Impaler. But what of the famed New Orleans haunt? 
the Count of Saint-Germain. As the story goes, sometime in the early 20th century, a handsome bachelor arrived in New Orleans. He set up residence in the heart of the city, and it wasn't long before the mysterious newcomer was a local celebrity. According to his friends, he went by Jacques Saint-Germain. Jacques was adored for his magnetism, affluence, and the lavish parties he threw at his stately home. He claimed to be the descendant of Comte de Saint-Germain, the noteworthy alchemist, magical practitioner, and companion of King Louis XV. Although most partygoers doubted his boasts, assuming their host suffered from an overactive ego, people couldn't ignore the resemblance between Jacques and the late magician. Soon the rumors began to swirl. Perhaps Jacques isn't a descendant of Saint-Germain, but is Saint-Germain himself. But nobody actually cared if Jacques was an immortal being because everybody loved him. After all, he had excellent style and hosted the best social gatherings, praised for his elaborate dinner parties, where he served only the best and most lavish foods. Jacques himself was a picky eater, however. In fact, nobody ever saw him eat a crumb of anything, not even once. And when it came to drinking, Jacques only had a taste for red wine. He preferred a special reserve from France, or maybe it was Transylvania? That's hard to say. Jacques had lived in many places and learned many languages. One would think he was 400 years old, not the 40 that he claimed. Despite Jacques' popularity in New Orleans, everything shifted during one dark and stormy evening. While most of the city was fast asleep, a woman's cries tore through the night. According to onlookers who arrived to help, a woman had fallen from Jacques' outdoor balcony. But when the police asked for her version of the story, she claimed it wasn't an accident and that she had jumped. Now, the woman was frantic, insisting that Chuck tried to bite her neck and drink her blood. But authorities were more inclined to side with the homeowner. You see, Jacques was a well-loved face about town, and she was an intoxicated, hysterical woman. Police told Saint-Germain that when he had time to come down to the station and make a statement. But Jacques never showed up. And when police arrived at his house to investigate, the man was nowhere to be found. Police searched the home and rifled through Jacques' possessions looking for any clue as to where he might have gone. Eventually, officers stumbled upon his wine collection. Everyone knew Jacques loved red wine, but when the bottles were uncorked, investigators noticed a metallic odor wafting from the inside, the scent of blood. News spread quickly about Saint-Germain's unusual taste in wine, which led to all sorts of speculation about the missing bachelor. According to those who attended his 
elite party circuit, one of Jacques's many boasts was that he had discovered the elixir of immortality. Perhaps there was more truth to his claim than anyone thought to believe. Over the years, New Orleans residents have claimed that Jacques Saint-Germain never left the city, and even today still roams the busy streets. He's been nicknamed the Louisiana Vampire, and his former home at 1039 Royal Street has become a local landmark and point of interest for ghost hunters, magic makers, and would-be alchemists. But what do you all think? Do you think he really was the vampire that everyone thought he was? Was he some wannabe? A mortal man like you or I who simply wanted to be a vampire and so drank blood? Or do you think this is all simply a story? A story meant to entertain those around the campfire? Be sure to let me know. However, remember this when making your decision. There's a kernel of truth to every legend.